tonight we'll continue our survey of the Noble Eightfold Path. We talked about uh, the first week about wise view and wise intention. Last week we talked about um, wise mindfulness and wise speech. And tonight we're going to continue with the part of the path um, that focuses on our meditation practice by talking about wise effort. We've really been talking about that all along. Sometimes I feel like that's all we talk about is wise effort because it's so central to um, this practice and to our um, journey on the meditative um, road, so to speak. It's another word that can sometimes be problematic. This morning I was talking about wise concentration and saying that sometimes that word concentration just by itself gets us into trouble. And the same with the word effort. When you think about that word, again, you you probably have this sense of maybe furrowing your brow a little bit and kind of um, something a little bit stressful perhaps. And so... um, that's not the. That's not what we want to leave you with. We're going to try to talk uh, um, about that that uh, way of looking at it. Um, but sometimes it's translated as energy, which could probably be a little more balanced for some people. Wise energy, so you can think of it that way too. Now, traditionally, I said I was going to give you guys classical teachings this month, and so the classical teachings around wise effort. Um, are known as the four great efforts. And these four great efforts uh, are of discouraging, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. I could say, when we start to say what each of those are, like in the full extent, the mind starts getting all tangled. So we want to discourage unarisen unwholesome mind states, and we want to abandon arisen unwholesome mind states. And we want to develop unarisen wholesome mind states, and we want to maintain arisen wholesome mind states. You got it? (laughs) I'll just give you a little shorthand, okay? So the shorthand is we want to discourage unwholesome mind states, and we want to encourage wholesome mind states. So just remember that much. And um, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's not hard to follow that, that uh, line of reasoning. So we want to discourage mind states such as craving, fear, anger, delusion, ignorance, doubt, restlessness, all the hindrances would go under there. And we want to encourage mind states such as wisdom and tranquility, peace, metta, compassion, mindfulness, all the factors of awakening would go in there. And if we take care of of this part of practice, you could say that that we've taken care of everything we need to take care of because the rest of practice just unfolds from uh, these four great efforts. Don't worry about enlightenment. 
just focus on these four great efforts and um, you'll be on your way. These four great efforts are what actually, you could say, clear and open the heart and the mind. So that deep understanding and wisdom can take root. Now, when I discuss these four great efforts and I talk about discouraging unwholesome mind states, probably somewhere, maybe even unconsciously, we translate that into our minds as, oh, get rid of unwholesome mind states. And then we might even go a little further and somewhere in our minds we think, oh, and be averse to unwholesome mind states. Or if I say encourage wholesome mind states, we might think, oh, try to hold on to them, try to keep them. Um, That conditioning is very automatic. So what I want to say is that that is not what we're saying. (laughs) The way that we discourage unwholesome mind states and encourage wholesome mind states is um, basically through the third and fourth foundations of mindfulness that I talked about last week. And the third foundation of mindfulness said, know when there's a mind of greed and know when there's a mind free of greed. Know when there's a mind of aversion, know when the mind is free of aversion. So basically bringing mindfulness to these mind states when we notice them, when they're present, that's the way that they change. In some ways, you could say that um, it's, it's less work than we think it is. <laughs> In some ways, you could say that awareness or mindfulness does the work. And it's really quite amazing how, how a mindfulness can discourage unwholesome mind states and encourage wholesome ones. It does both. Discourages unwholesome mind states by, you could say, arresting the um, proliferation of the stories associated with these unwholesome mind states that, that lead to the continuing and the growing and the maintaining of these unwholesome mind states. So mindfulness gives us a chance of cutting, you could say, the condition, conditioning and, and redirecting those pathways in the mind. And we are talking about, at one point, about how So if there's an unwholesome mind state present, it's like know what that experience is in your body and know what happens in the mind. Sure, you can see what kinds of stories happening, where the mind goes, the texture in the mind. Does it feel cramped or does it feel spacious? Does it feel flexible or inflexible? Um, But also notice it in the body. Is there anywhere in the body that we feel that emotion? And what happens when we can be with an emotion in the body, allowing, as the third foundation of mindfulness says, be there with it. And, and then mindfulness does the work. You don't have to try to get rid of the unwholesome mind state. Let mindfulness do the work. And wholesome mind states. So, wholesome mind state arises. Let's say metta. Metta arises. We bring mindfulness to metta. 
We notice how that feels in the body. What's that embodied experience? And as we um, give energy through mindfulness to that mind state, we find that we are um, strengthening the pathways in the heart for that particular mind state. So again, uh, um, uh, mindfulness is doing the work. You don't have to try to hang on and, and make a stay. It's just... It's a natural outcome of mindfulness brought to wholesome mind states that they strengthen. If you feel peace in your sitting or calm in your sitting, feel it. Let yourself be mindful of that. Help strengthen that pathway in the heart. So it's very cool what mindfulness can do. And then the fourth foundation, we're not going to talk a lot about it today, but the fourth foundation was about understanding causes and conditions that support the arising of unwholesome mind states or support the arising of wholesome mind states. This is another way to um, discourage unwholesome mind states, encourage wholesome ones, is to notice the causes and conditions that lead to their arising. So let's say, for example, you get a little bored on retreat and you decide you're going to look at your cell phone. So you look at your cell phone and then you come into the hall and you sit and there's lots of restlessness in your sitting. It's like, huh, what was the cause or condition that supported restlessness, unwholesome mind state? Oh, looking at my cell phone, scattered my attention. Then we can learn. That's a good thing to know, to understand, oh, maybe perhaps I shouldn't look at my cell phone. It's not conducive (laughs) to my meditation. Or let's say you come in and you have this sitting that's effortless. Things are just flowing along and it's really quite smooth. It's like, what What were you doing before you came into the sitting? Oh, you did walking practice and then you were very continuous as you came from the walking hall and came into the hall. You kept the mindfulness going. Ah, so that was a cause and condition for, for, for this kind of effortless peace to arise in your practice. Good to know that. So basically, that's how we um, encourage unwholesome mind, discourage unwholesome mind states, and encourage wholesome mind states is bring mindfulness to them, and understand causes and conditions that support or discourage. Discourage the unwholesome, support the wholesome. Hmm. So sometimes we have um, these really deep, deep conditioned patterns of unwholesome don't read bad when I say unwholesome, okay? <laughs> when I say unwholesome, sometimes you mean, oh, bad mind states. No, afflictive mind states. So um, sometimes we have these patternings of deep um, afflictive mind or deep conditioning leading to afflictive mind states. Kind of like grooves in the mind that the mind has gone down, or the, the conditioning has gone down so many times. These grooves, are they're like slippery. You start a little just twinge of something and you're all the way down. So (laughs) 
One of them might be something like um, feelings of unworthiness, our fear of not belonging, our perfectionism, these kinds of um, conditioning often set in very early. And these deep grooves, they take a lot of patience, these unwholesome mind states. So we need the mindfulness and we need a lot of love and a lot of patience in addition. Somebody described it as like, this kind of conditioning is like rolled up paper. So you have this roll of paper and it's been rolled up for a long time. And so you might come along and you flatten it. And then um, it pops back. Right, you flatten it, it pops back. You flatten it, it pops back. Um, Because it's been rolled up so long, it takes time and patience for it to to flatten out. It's kind of the same with these mind states. We're like, why does this keep coming back? That's sometimes a question we'll ask with these deep, tender, tender patterns. Well, because there's um, a lot of conditioning there, and we just patiently unroll the paper, (laughs) goes back, we unroll it again, we just keep working with it. There's a poem by um, a Buddhist hermit nun named Rengetsu. I'm guessing Japanese, but I'm not sure. Um, This is the poem, describes this to me. Yesterday, I shattered the ice to draw water. No matter, this morning, frozen just as solid. (laughs) There's also something very light about that, and there's a lot of patience in that poem. A lot of understanding. Yesterday, I shattered the ice to draw water. No matter, this morning, frozen just as solid. We're back to the ice mountains in the heart, right, that we talked about (laughs) the other day. These are, um, yeah, these places and these deep grooves in the heart and mind, they're definitely part of the ice mountain. And, um, yeah, break the ice, it might freeze over, but you can break it again. So actually, all, um, often practice takes a There's a way that it takes more effort than we think it should, and it also takes less effort than we think it should. Carl Jung said, related to what I was just talking about, we must be able to let things happen in the psyche. For us, this is actually an art of which few people know anything. Consciousness is forever interfering, helping, correcting, and negating, and never leaving the simple growth of the psychic processes in peace. It would be simple enough if only simplicity were not the most difficult of all things. So we're actually headed towards a certain kind of simplicity and working with the mind states that arise. And yet that's the most difficult thing. 
because we want to get so involved in negating, correcting, helping, interfering. A mindfulness allows us this simple option, this option of simplicity of being with and trusting the um, unfolding of the practice, trusting your own process. So related, I want to, or continuing, I want to talk some about effort and energy from the perspective of balance, of balanced effort and energy, which is perhaps a question we get more than any other. It's pretty high up there on the list. How do we make effort in meditation practice in an effective way? I remember once I was teaching with Joseph Goldstein at the retreat center and he said, a skillful effort or wise effort is with us till the very end of our practice. And that really struck me. What it means is that it, 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 we're not going to get it once and for all and be done with it. <laughs> it's a dynamic and alive part of our practice that takes a sensitivity to the context and to what is most helpful now in our practice. What does right effort or wise effort mean now given the causes and conditions that are present in our practice? So you can't kind of peg it down and say, oh, this is always the right way because it's so contextual. So you could say wise effort is what works right now. So there's a certain amount of um, discernment that we need to bring. But there are some guidelines that can help us with this discernment. And these guidelines, you could say, are summed up in in, um, a sutra from the the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. And um, I love, this is one of the, to me, one of the more delightful sutras. And it's about this, a little bit about this paradox of effort. So there's a deva, or dewa, um, a heavenly being in Buddhist uh, cosmology. So the dewa, devas like to talk to the Buddha. They think he's pretty cool. So the deva says to the Buddha, Tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. So crossing over the flood is a metaphor for freeing the heart and mind. And the Buddha said, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the deva says, well, how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? wants a bit more information. (laughs) The Buddha says, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. The deva seemed satisfied. Says, at long last, I see an honorable one, totally unbound, who, without pushing forward, 
without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. So in a move that's both delightful and intriguing, the Buddha didn't really tell us what he did. He told us what he didn't do, however, so that gives us some help. (laughs) He said um, that he avoided the extremes of staying in one place, which to me means not making really any effort. And he avoided the extreme of pushing forward, which to me means striving. There's a lot of territory in between, but the territory in between is skillful, wise effort, in between laziness and doing nothing, and in between striving and pushing and getting aggressive in our practice. So let's take a little look at these extremes here. So he says, when I stayed in place, I sank. (laughs) That's a nice way of describing what happens when we don't make effort. We sink and get mired right in the stories and turbulence of the heart and the mind get stuck. So we know that we need to make some effort in our spiritual practice. And you all know that. You wouldn't be here, obviously, trying giving your, um, your heart to this if you didn't know that. You'd be shopping or something like that instead. What sometimes we don't realize when we start out is, is kind of the extent of the energy and effort that it takes on the spiritual path. We, um, we come hoping for instant meditation instead of insight meditation. I heard in the early years here that somebody actually wrote a letter to IMS addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> I hope they didn't come because <laughs> they were going to be severely disappointed. <laughs> on our retreat, we can think of, well, what does staying in one place on retreat mean? It's when you have that sense that you're not really giving your heart, you could say, to what you're doing. Or perhaps when there's um, an over-attention to comfort. It's it's really tricky, because for different people, um, this is going to really look different. Like if you came here and you're really worn out and you've been suffering a lot, you might need a lot of comfort. That might be actually what the system needs in order to settle. So it's going to be a moving, it's, I can't tell, I can't say one thing for this, everybody in this hall, but it's to check out for ourselves, are we giving our heart to what we're doing? Are we stretching enough that we're learning something? Somebody once said that we each have a soft limit and a hard limit. So we want to go beyond the soft limit. If we don't go behind that, we, we, beyond that we don't grow. But we don't want to go beyond the hard limit. Because beyond that it's counterproductive. We're actually doing more harm. 
So sometimes we have to, if, if yogis are pushing too hard on the hard limit, we have to say, wait a moment, pull back, come back. You're actually being too aggressive or too hard on your system. It's not helpful. You're overriding what your system needs. Stretching some, and for some people just being here is stretching. (laughs) For some people, um, much more is called for. I know that my own practice has changed so much over the years. My first long retreat, I was 24, I had a lot of energy. I uh, slept five hours a night and I practiced basically all the rest of the time. That's all I did. I couldn't do that now. <laughs> Circumstances are different. So, so it changes. But there's a sense of stretching and we can kind of feel what that is for ourselves. It has its own reward. There's a sense of, you could say, self-respect and self-confidence that comes from stretching. The root of, of the word virya, sometimes translated as energy, is um, strength. We find our strength through the stretching. But we look, when we stretch, we can see, was this helpful or was this not helpful? Really take a look. So maybe you stay up and meditate late. Well, what happens? The next day, are you tired? Maybe it wasn't helpful. Or maybe you're not tired and, and, and it was supportive. we can find little ways um, to kind of keep, keep the foot just lightly on the gas. <laughs> Might be adding in more continuity. Maybe from our walking period to walking to our sitting cushion, we, we make that a little meditation period. It may be um, eating meditation that we take our time, perhaps even really slowly for the whole meal, or perhaps that's too much for us, maybe the first 10 bites, just being with the changing tastes in the mouth and the feeling of the reaching and swallowing. Can look where we can just keep that gentle stretching happening. If we've been looking at our electronics, we can put them away. Something I'm practically begging yogis to do these days. It makes a difference. And if you feel like you've gotten too lax, maybe too relaxed, here's a little short instructions. 
A woman once shared that she had a very large, very complicated book outlining a diet that needed to be followed down to the last detail. Chapter after chapter chapter explained the intricate ins and outs of it. The last chapter was entitled, What to Do When You Fall Off the Diet. It had one sentence, start over. So there's your chapter, (laughs) start over. (laughs) When you feel like perhaps you've um, not been giving it your whole heart. But for many of us, um, the challenge and the and the um, many of us tend to go the other way. We tend to push forward, as the Buddha called it. And when he said, when he pushed forward, he was whirled about. And so, what he's pointing to is that when we um, push forward or strive, that we actually create more turbulence. Whirled about, more turbulence in the heart and the mind. So pushing forward is all this territory such as using our will too forcefully, striving, expectation, trying to make something happen, going on archaeological digs into your pain. (laughs) When we push forward, we exacerbate the turmoil of our hearts and our minds. So we have to actually get really familiar with what is this extreme like? Because sometimes it's so subtle, it's so... we don't know we're doing it, right? It's like it's, it's so ingrained for many of us in kind of our habitual way of dealing with life, of using this willpower that, um, that we don't see ourselves do it. So we, 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 we start to learn to see ourselves do it. And we start to learn to see this, this striving, pushing forward energy on subtler and subtler and subtler levels. It gets more and more refined. So we might be trying to make emotions go away, or we might be trying to make thoughts go away, or we might be trying to make our mind attention stay on our anchor, or we might be trying to force our hearts to open. Or we might be trying to work through our deepest pain. Anytime we have an agenda, usually there's some pushing forward happening. Some agenda, some attachment to results. Striving so complex because it's usually fool, fueled and fooled both <laughs> by those karmic knots that I was mentioning earlier, those deeply conditioned patterns. So striving get, can get really um, mixed up in, in feelings of perfectionism, of not being good enough and unworthiness, of wanting to be liked, loved, successful, perhaps coming from a deep place of, of fear or insecurity. It's an intense place, striving is.
what we see when we look deeply is that striving actually makes us lose connection. Actually, the more we strive, the further we get from the truth. So we bring our attention to striving to understand it. Usually lots of unwholesome mind states there, so bringing our um, attention to these unwholesome mind states, giving a chance for them to lose their power. Different neural pathways in the mind can be developed. We usually kind of go kicking and screaming a little bit, though. We love um, willpower. (laughs) It feels like such a refuge, doesn't it? This sense that we can um, use our will to control. That's a lot of the striving energy, is like this belief that we can use our will to make things be the way we think they should be or the way we want them to be. So often there's this this pervasive assumption that what is happening shouldn't be happening and that we should be able to control it and that we can't control it, so therefore we're failing. And no, the truth is we can't control our practice. We can influence it. We can do certain, uh, uh, again, looking at causes and conditions and putting in the energy, but we can't control it. But we have this belief that somehow we must be able to get conditions perfect and we haven't yet figured out how to do it and that we just need to figure out how to do it. That's what's behind this driving sometimes is this idea that we just haven't yet figured it out. And that we're going to be happy when we figure out how to get it just right. Hmm. It's interesting to listen to the stories of striving. The inner critic is a big fan of striving. (laughs) The right-hand man, the coach, the cheerleader... What is the inner critic? Just a way of describing a certain patterning. Sometimes calling it the inner critic helps helps us be able to relate to it a little bit more without getting caught in it. What does the inner critic tell us? Sometimes the inner critic just offers all kinds of helpful advice. You're not trying hard enough. You should be trying harder. What's wrong with you? Look at everybody else. They're all probably stream enters by now, and look at you. (laughs) So we have to bring this inner critic out into the open. Hmm. Watch out for the word should or the word shouldn't. Striving is not far away. Sometimes striving is really subtle, so sometimes it's loud like that, the inner critic, 
giving advice and the kind of the frustration that we haven't quite gotten it right or the sense of tension and tightness that we should be able to get it right and that if we kind of try harder we'll get it right. Sometimes it's really subtle. It's just this kind of leaning into the next moment. That's like subtle striving. It's like the next moment, that's going to be the one that does it. It's not this one, it's the next one. (laughs) So there's this just slight leaning forward, you could say, Um, not maybe so much physically, though maybe a teeny bit, but more energetically. And with all of these forms of striving, one thing you can do is, first of all, since striving tends to go forward and up, just a slight back and down. You can just start with that, like it's energetic or maybe even physically, it's like back, down. <laughs> and then it's like, what's happening now? That's all we care about. And what we're looking for is actually not perfectionism or perfection. We're looking for authenticity. It's like, what's, what's really true right now? Oh, there's this sadness that maybe I'm not good enough and I need something else. Oh, that's the truth of the moment. Can we meet that? What happens when we meet that with mindfulness? So we can always ask that question, ah, what's true right now? And see if we can get better and better at discerning that and at joyfully meeting that, no matter what it is. The joy being the connection, the joy being the authenticity, The joy being the lack of wishing to be somewhere else. Ah, what a relief. We can practice a relief of, ah, what's happening now. I know a lot about this from my own personal practice. (laughs) I was, um, in my early years, I was definitely super yogi. (laughs) I wanted to do it just right and be really good at it. And I, you know, I did have some facility for it, which is why I'm here. (laughs) But... um, I had, to, I had to come to the limits of what my will could do because I had strong willpower and I used it a lot. But I came to a retreat at a certain point where the use of the will, and, um, I was using my will to override what my system could um, really honestly absorb at that time. 
but I didn't want to stop because I liked my will <laughs> and I liked being super yogi. <laughs> and my teacher, she finally said to me, you have to stop meditating. Stop. <laughs> She's like, you can sit formally one time a day, okay? That's it. This was not good news to me. <laughs> it was quite distraught. I was quite distraught, actually. <laughs> and... Um, but it, but she was right. It was too much for my nervous system. It wasn't. I needed to. I needed to stop. I was, it was too much concentration, and it wasn't. It just wasn't balanced. And um, I wound up having the best retreat. Of it was it was wonderful after ten days of torment <laughs> because I was so upset that I couldn't be super yogi. So I was watching all the other yogis sit and walk, and I'm like. I want to sit and walk. And <laughs> I want to be super yogi. And I was doing all the things I judged other yogis for and um, all my karma was coming due. <laughs> um, and um, I guess I learned something about surrender. And it was... Uh, um, it was so freeing. And what I saw was the stories under the striving then, right? Because the stories, it came down to something like, I have to produce something out of this retreat. And if I don't produce something, then um, I'm not worthy of existence. That was somewhat the story. And um, I gave up trying to produce something. Wow. What freedom. Never gone back to striving in the same way. It's no fun. (laughs) So we start to learn. So what we start to learn is like how to use our will skillfully because there is a place for willpower. It can be a skillful and helpful um, mind factor but how to, uh, you could say, use it with gentleness and use it with love. Striving doesn't leave a lot of room for compassion and love, right? But softening the striving, learning not to buy into those stories, and starting to understand how the power of compassion and love transform. That was another really important part of my practice was Um, when I really started to understand the metta meditation and how important it is. For the trust of the heart and the mind. For the softening and melting of that ice mountain. So all the effort, it starts to, at a certain point, um, lean towards effortlessness. And sometimes our, 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 our practice is this flow between effort and effortless. Sometimes it's important to make effort, but then sometimes it's important to rest in, a, in, in non-effort. But that's so tricky because how do you try 
not to try. <laughs> that one messes with our minds too. That messes with willpower. Because you can't try not to try. You can't try not to meditate because then you're doing something. It's a kind of surrender again into what is happening and into letting be. <laughs> this is a somewhat related, not totally, but I just love it so much, so I think we can fit it in. It came from um, the Buddha Dharma magazine, and it's apparently from the movie Star Wars, which I'm not... I don't even know which Star Wars it's from. I'm not totally familiar with Star Wars. I think I saw the first one 20, 30 years ago, something like that. Um, but so some of you will maybe recognize the name. So it says, As Han Solo... I've heard of him. As Han Solo told Chewbacca when the Wookiee asked him how he's supposed to fly the Millennium Falcon at a distance, but not look like he's trying to keep his distance. I don't know, Han shouted. Fly casual. <laughs> to me, this somehow answers the question of how to try without looking like you're trying or without trying. <laughs> how he was supposed to fly the Millennium Falcon at a distance, but not look like he's trying to keep his distance. I don't know, fly casual. <laughs> it's kind of a it's kind of a koan. This relaxing into our practice or um, this more effortless practice. During that retreat where I was not only allowed to sit formally once a day. I was allowed to do um, a practice that my teacher gave me called useless gazing. And basically I could have a cup of tea and sit and look out the window or sit outside and gaze uselessly. And um, that was interesting. <laughs> it's not meditating. I do a lot of useless gazing these days, actually, come to think of it. When I go to these marshes that I'm always talking about, mostly I'm doing useless gazing. But useless gazing is great because then you get to just watch what's happening without an agenda or trying to create something or trying to live up to something or expecting something. There's a certain freedom there in useless gazing. Trungpa Rinpoche says, we can actually sit on a cushion without any purpose, none whatsoever. It is outrageous. Nobody would ever think to do that. We can't even think about it. It's unthinkable. It's terrible. We would be wasting our time. Give time a rest. Let it be wasted. Create virgin time. Uncontaminated time. Time that hasn't been hassled by aggression, passion, and speed. Let us create pure time. Sit and create pure time. Or, as Norman Fisher says, one of my favorite Zen teachers, 
To sustain our efforts over time, we have to be able to rest in uselessness. For me, uselessness is the essential characteristic of all spiritual practice. Uselessness is exactly its usefulness. Usefulness because exactly because you are not trying to get something out of it, but are doing it merely at, to do it, it refreshes, it changes your life. And Norman Fisher. This is an odd paradox. You get what you are looking for, but only when you stop looking for it. And what you get may not be exactly what you thought you were after in the beginning. It will be what you were really looking for, but didn't know you were looking for. Buddha Dharma magazine. Lama Willa Miller. One hot summer evening several years ago, I found myself listening to a teaching in a meditation hall in upstate New York. A hush came over the crowd as the diminutive teacher entered the room and took his seat. Do you want to know the secret to meditation? He asked. Vigorous nods answered his question. Who doesn't like to be in on secret? Okay, he said, but first we need to prepare to meditate. Get comfortable on your cushion. Straighten your back. Lower your gaze. Relax your shoulders. Take a few slow, deep breaths. He demonstrated. There was a shuffle around the room as people shifted, pushed cushions into place, straightened up, sighed deeply. After a minute or so, the fidgeting settled. Okay, now, the teacher paused for effect. Listen closely, I'm going to share a secret with you. A palpable sense of anticipation settled over the room. Are you sure you're ready? He was teasing us a little. Glancing up, I could see he was smiling, enjoying our expectation. All right, the secret to meditation is... He paused again to heighten our anticipation. Don't meditate. He drew out the word don't slowly. After pausing again to let the instructions sink in, he added, instead, just be present as you are, right here, right now. No grasping. Nothing more needs to be done. Perhaps that is skillful effort.
I will end today with one of my favorite stories about effort. In the 60s and 70s, the Chan, uh, it's another word for Zen, or a kind of Zen. In the 60s and 70s, the Chan monk Dei Chun lived in rural Tennessee where he attracted a small but devoted group of students associated with the nearby university. When Dei Chun first came to Tennessee, there was a huge dead oak in the yard beside his cabin. One of his neighbors happened by and said, you'd better cut that thing down or one of these days it's going to fall on your roof. Oh, thank you, said Dechen. The next time he went into town, he bought a hatchet at a thrift store. He promptly set to work on the tree's enormous trunk, chopping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement at his minimal progress. Neighbors, seeing him work day after day, showed up with chainsaws, offering to cut it down for him. Thank you, no, said Dechen. I do it my way. This went on for months with such regularity that if the neighbors didn't hear the steady chop-chop-chop of Dei Chun on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure he was all right. It became a phenomenon, a cause for conversation, and before too long, this old Chinese fellow had become a member of the neighborhood. On the day the tree finally fell with a crash that shook all the houses on his street, One of Dei Chun's friends asked him, So what will you do now? Make firewood, answered Dei Chun. He later said that this was the way he taught his students meditation. You just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. Let's sit for a minute. Absorbing what was useful in the talk and letting the rest float away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.